Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association, and they have invited John Antonakis to join us. So John, will you introduce yourself to our guests? Hi, thanks for inviting me, Maureen. So I study leadership. My background is in industrial organizational psychology, management, but I tend to uh, study leadership from many different angles, including behavioral economics, looking at hormones, analytics, big data, deep learning. Leadership is very complex, so we need to get a little pieces of, of the puzzle from different disciplines before we can understand what's happening. So quite a different background. I would say, from uh, the usual classical leadership scholar. So today, to that end, we're going to be talking about the importance of studying leadership scientifically. John, how are you defining leadership and how might that be different than what many of our listeners might think of as leadership? I think over the ages, there's been some difficulty in understanding what leadership is because oftentimes it's confused with authority. So simply having a position of power, having authority doesn't necessarily mean that one is behaving as a leader. So leadership is an influencing process that can happen formally or informally. And whether a follower decides to do what the leader asks him or her to do is voluntary. So true leadership is one where a leader in a transparent way influences a follower, a group of followers, or an institution, a country, and the followers do this voluntarily. So because of this, we have an enormous problem in studying leadership because oftentimes in observational studies, they look at leaders in positions of power and try to correlate that with certain outcomes. That's not a good way of understanding how leadership is. It would be a can epidemiology or in medicine, you know, to observe uh, people uh, who may live longer or die sooner and try to figure out what it is that's causing the deaths without understanding the causal mechanisms behind that. So there's been a dearth of research using experimental studies where we hold constant certain things, like, for example, the look of the leader. This is something I've, I've studied myself. We had an article published in the journal Science where we showed that little kids could predict who would win an election outcome merely by looking at the faces and rating the faces of the winner and runner-up. Now, this effect works in low-information elections. Suppose that people don't have a lot of information on the candidates. They will be influenced by many specious factors, including how symmetrical the person is, their race, their age, their height, their skin color. So, you know, there's so many variables that can determine whether a person will be accorded status or not. And if all these variables are not measured, we can't really estimate what is the marginal effect of being more charismatic or not. You know, I could be seen as being charismatic as a function of, uh, I don't know, my, uh, my intelligence or how extroverted I am or because I'm a man or because I'm white or because I have a reasonably uh, symmetrical face. If all these factors are not controlled for, one cannot estimate whether charisma has any effect on an outcome. So, you know, whether we're studying charisma or another kind of leadership style, we really have to measure the whole package of factors that may determine leadership emergence or success. If we can't do that, then we need to exogenously manipulate it and go into experimental research. So, you know, basically, if I need to summarize We've spent decades and decades and decades studying leadership, but unfortunately, I think most of the studies have not been very useful. There's been a lot of wheel spinning, but not a lot of causally 
identified evidence that can inform policy. To that end, because I happen to also study leadership, and now I'm wondering if I'm studying the wrong stuff, what can you share with us that you think is the best or most informative information about leadership based on your research? Okay, let me just take one example. So we have a paper now in pressing management science where we estimate the economic effect of charismatic leadership. And in that paper, we take an experimental approach. And the reason why is we justify it by saying, so in the past, the typical study would be take a bunch of people who have a leader directing them, ask them to rate the leader on how charismatic he or she is. So then you'd get a score on charisma and then use that score to predict some kind of outcome, how well the department is doing or how well the firm is doing or what have you. So as I mentioned previously, those scores on charisma don't just depend on how a person behaves, but they also depend on summary evaluations of the people doing the ratings. So if there's variation on beauty, on sex, on ethnicity, on intelligence, on extroversion, on openness, you know, so many factors which we cannot possibly control. So it is impossible to know when we get variation on charisma and we find that it correlates with some outcome, that charisma actually caused that outcome. It could be an omitted variable that the person is more intelligent and more intelligent and more open-minded and more extroverted person acts charismatically. And a more intelligent, extroverted, open-minded person also knows how to set systems and policies in place to make the company more effective. So it's not charisma that is causing the outcome, but these omitted variables. Now, these variables are never studied systematically and never controlled for in a study. So what we did to estimate the causal effect of charisma is we set up a firm, a temporary firm, where we hired workers to do a task. It turns out this was a, a mail sorting task, so they... We gave them a bunch of letters and envelopes and coupons and cards, and they had to fill these envelopes for a, a fundraising campaign for a hospital in Birmingham, England. Now, the workers uh, were not aware that they were in a study. We hired them through the usual channels using ADECO, which is a temporary work agency, and then we randomized the workers to one of three conditions. So if you have a bunch of workers, 120 or so we had, and we randomly placed them in one of three conditions, you know, the average worker in the three conditions is about the same. So we didn't put like the smartest workers in one group and the more productive in another. We randomized them. So we have an equal distribution of characteristics in the three groups. And then what we did is we guaranteed in all three groups that the workers would be paid the minimum wage at the time in England, which was, uh, I don't know, about $10 an hour approximately. So in two of the conditions, we gave them a standard speech, which was a pretty good motivational speech using a trained actor. And in one of those conditions, we said, if you go beyond a certain performance threshold, we will give you performance bonuses. So we have a condition where we have a standard speech with bonuses and a fallback of a minimum wage. If they don't uh, reach the threshold, we have the condition where they have standard speech and the minimum wage. And then we had a third condition where we had the minimum wage, but instead of using a standard speech, we gave a charismatic speech. So what we wanted to see was how the workers would react when they got a five-minute motivational speech, either in a standard way or in a charismatic way, and whether charisma would actually induce as much output as would high-performance bonuses. So the bonuses, it's important to note here, you know, in the real world, managers have access to bonuses, peace rates. So, you know, that's the strongest counterfactual test that one could have using real world situations. 
And we calculated the bonus level by doing a pilot under supervised conditions to see what an average worker could do. So we looked at the output of an average worker. We knew what the wage was that we would pay for that base output. And we calculated the maximum piece rate we could pay so that the cost in the bonus condition wouldn't exceed the cost in the standard condition. So it turns out that that bonus was about 20 cents, American cents per extra unit produced. So if someone produced five extra units, then they would gain a dollar. Now, these, these workers were temporary workers, so they needed the money. So economic theory would suggest that it's only the condition where they had performance bonuses that would really matter and drive performance up relative to the standard condition. So it turns out that we found that performance bonuses increased output by about 20%. We held constant the cost per unit as expected, but curiously, charisma increased performance by about 18%, and there was no statistical difference between the charisma condition and the bonus performance condition. So what's unique in this study is that we exogenously manipulated leadership, just like when you exogenously give you know, half the sample, say, an MRI, a vaccine and the other half a placebo, and we could estimate the causal effect using output that we could observe and measure. These kind of studies are lacking because, as I mentioned, observational studies cannot control for all these extraneous effects. Oftentimes, people use lab studies where things are hypothetical, you know, like, you know, imagine that you went to work and your dog just died and John walks in and plonks a bunch of files on your desk. He knows your dog died, but he ignores it. And he tells you, you know, I really need this by 12 o'clock, you know, rate John as a leader. Those kinds of paper people studies that are hypothetical don't factor in the true performance dynamics at work when leaders have real power over followers. What I'm pleading for is that we study leadership using more field experiments in real situations where we can exogenously manipulate the leadership style. Now, in this case, we used an actor play the role of a manager who came in to explain to them the importance of the task. But there's many other ways in which we can do exogenous manipulations. And I've also done that as well in 2011, where we showed that we could take an average manager. This was in a high-tech telecommunications company. We randomized them to treatment or control condition. Treatment meaning we trained them how to be more charismatic. And then three months later, we did a 360 assessment on them to see if they had changed, if they had learned to behave more charismatically, if they were seen differently. And lo and behold, we saw that field experiments in our, in our domain are extremely rare and they are the highest rung of evidence. That's how we test also medicines or economic interventions or other kinds of educational interventions. It's only through field experiments we can know what's happening. And that's where I've been pleading a lot to leadership scholars is to invest more time in doing those kinds of studies. So it sounds like your evidence is pointing to charismatic leadership as highly valuable to your point, facial symmetry and things like that, my face is my face. And unless I choose to have it surgically shifted, there are some things I can't really change. Exactly. And the whole point why I studied this charisma was because, you know, people, when they look at us, they size us up quickly. They look at our age, our sex, our height, our ethnicity, our appearance, and they put a price on our tag. If we look like a million dollars, they fill in the blanks and assume we have lots of positive characteristics. If we don't, then, you know, can we do anything about it? So in fact, this is what motivated my research to see whether we can change the price people put on our tags. I latched on charisma because I was fascinated by the topic. There are other approaches and other things that leaders can do. 
So I'm not saying that the alpha and the omega, ooh, I shouldn't use Greek words now because alpha and omega probably will turn out, <laughs> alpha was the <laughs> COVID virus COVID. and omega. Hopefully we'll stop at Omicron and never get to omega. But, you know, it's not the beginning and the end of leadership. It's just one aspect of it that's very important. So for me, charisma is signaling information about your abilities in a symbolic emotional and value-laden way. So symbolic meaning that you can speak in pictures, metaphorically stories, emotions meaning that one signals their passion and their conviction. And the third thing is values that you explicitly define and defend certain values that you hold dear that gives you the as on that, why are we trying to do something? And you know, we showed that this is not in the province of just CEOs and political leaders. The study I did was with low-level workers. We just replicated the study on Swiss TV. It was uh, shown a few weeks ago with uh, real workers as well. So this is something that works in many different kinds of situations, and it's just using interpersonal influence, using soft means, using the power of the persona. And going back to you know what Aristotle said in the rhetoric and in poetics, you know either we can influence people using the art of leadership, and where he actually mentioned that metaphor was the core of this and using the ethos, the logos, or the pathos. Otherwise, we'd have to resort to contracts and torture. Contracts meaning incentives, which certainly do work. And, and torture, I, I don't think he meant torture in the sense we've got to torture people. But, you know, carrots and sticks is what will get people to move. What you are not saying is what some people would define as charisma over a certain height, a certain appearance that we have traditionally associated with charisma? Well, let's just say that George Clooney or Marilyn Monroe would be accorded partially charisma because of their look. That's something that does matter. And all those variables that I said to you do matter. However, what we are showing is beyond all those variables, can we take a normal person and you know inject them with charisma and then do we see an effect? And the answer is yes. So there certainly is an innate component that depends on the look, um, person's natural level of extroversion, you know, how smart they are, their wit, how, how they think, how humorous that all these things fit into whether people ascribe charisma to someone or not. But we certainly can show too that it is a set of learnable skills that can be trained. And certainly they do matter. I mean, that's why, you know, presidents and CEOs and, and any other people who we have large audiences take time to prepare what they're going to say. Well, at least most of them do. You know, others prefer to speak in streams of consciousness. But even then, as we've seen of late, that can influence people. <laughs> I don't want to mention names in particular. <laughs> but I guess you know what I'm talking about. One of the important things I hear is, while I'll never, certainly never look like George Clooney and not Marilyn Monroe either, frankly, I can still teach and learn, and specifically because you keep mentioning extroversion, that even though I'm introverted, I can demonstrate extroverted qualities. I can certainly have emotional resonance. I can be a good storyteller. I can care deeply about the people who I'm leading. Definitely. Two studies that we've done recently, we measured, for example, the density of charisma in TED Talks, and we totally ignore the nonverbal behavior. And we can predict which TED Talks go viral from the content of what is being said. We have a study with US presidents published in the Academy of Management Journal where we go back to 1916, we code 
just the verbal component of the speech at the nomination at the Democratic or Republican convention. We control for macroeconomic factors. So, of course, you know, the, the U.S. elections happen every four years. It's an exogenous trigger. So we can get reasonably good causal estimates as to what drives whether someone wins an election or not. So it turns out the economy matters a lot. The incumbent usually has a lot of power. If the economy is doing well, they're rewarded or punished. When the economy is kind of, you know, they're not sure whether to blame or to reward the incumbent. That's when what the person says matters most. Now, people have a, this impression that nonverbal behavior is dominant in attributions of charisma. And that's not true. In fact, in our data, what really matters is what you say. You know, you can't just say gibberish and expect people to believe you and follow you. So if we look at a, a lot of the great leaders that we've had, take Gandhi, for example, or Nelson Mandela, you know, they were very quiet spoken individuals who had enormous charisma. So a lot of the stuff that I'm doing now, we're trying to tease out the nonverbal component. It seems that the nonverbal is the glaçage, uh, as you know, the, the, how do we say, the icing on the cake, but the cake is really what you say. So, you know, people are not that down. You can't just speak gibberish and uh, really uh, signal your charisma and your passion, but, you know, speaking rubbish, people are not going to listen to you. So I think first we need to explain with words and show why. And, you know, if we can do it in an animated way, all the better. Your point of Gandhi and Nelson Mandela says that people who are quiet and thoughtful and caring can be perceived as equally as charismatic as people who are hand-waving and... Yeah, I mean, even more so, because I think people are even skeptical when one over-signals and overplays their passion and the hand. I mean, take Margaret Thatcher. She's another excellent example extremely good use of metaphor and symbolism and defending values. Now, I didn't agree with her. She was a bit too right-wing for my taste. But if I stick one of her speeches through my charismometer, and I do have one, we can talk about it using uh, deep neural networks. I mean, she really scored very high on it. But when you see her speaking, she was extremely cold, extremely dry, extremely distant, very little variation in her voice and very little nonverbal behavior. So really what matters is what you say mostly. Mm, that's interesting because I think we were, and this points to your research, that what we were led to believe is people who, like a Ronald Reagan, who would be perceived as charismatic from a film actor perspective, that's what we've attributed the term charisma to, not to these other factors specifically about the language. Yeah. Well, Reagan, he was an actor and he knew how to play a role. I give him that. But mm -hmm. also, he could speak very well. He was very good with metaphor. He was very witty. He was very good in symbolism. He was very good in defending values. He was very good at storytelling. So I really think that he was actually very good on a rhetorical level. He was very, very good. Again, a bit too right-wing for my liking, but very likable, you know, very warm. And that's because of the way that he spoke beyond his nonverbal behavior. You said you did a study from 1913 to present. Who else tested as highly charismatic that we might not think of as charismatic? Aha. Uh -huh. uh, what I'll have to look in the database. It was 1916, by the way, to 2008. Obama, I think uh, he broke the machine pretty much. Uh, he <laughs> He's very, very, very charismatic. And Again, if you just watch a speech of Obama speaking, he doesn't gesticulate very much relative to, say, I don't know, a Donald Trump. I mean, you know, Donald Trump's like always gesticulating, always making gestures. 
you know, Obama's on a rhetorical level, his scores extremely high. I think Bill Clinton was very high. FDR was reasonably high. Kennedy, I think, uh, was very high. You know, if I stick the inaugural speech, ask not what your country can do for you, what you can do for your country. I mean, that speech is an awfully well-constructed speech that has a lot of the elements of charisma in it. You know, a lot of symbolism, metaphor, a lot of framing, a lot of value statements, and a lot of contrast. You know, we're not here to do this. We're here to do that. We shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do that. So he was very high as well, I think. It sounds like I should just hire a good speechwriter. <laughs> well, you speak extremely well, and uh, I, I wouldn't do that. Oh, by the way, it reminds me of a little study we've accepted at the Leadership Portly. They did a very simple experiment. They put people around the room and gave different instructions to people. They pre-measured how extroverted they were or introverted, and then they randomly gave people instructions, just act more extroverted. And just telling people to do that makes them be perceived more extroverted and makes them more likely to emerge as leaders. So it's not so difficult to do. But again, I wouldn't want people to, you know, be something that they're not. Believe it or not, I'm actually very unsociable and extremely disagreeable. So, you know, I'm making a real effort to be nice to you now, just so you know. <laughs> but, you know, that doesn't stop me from playing whatever role I need to play. And of course, the fact that you're sitting in front of a mic a lot of the time and speaking to thousands and millions of people and you do this a lot and you do it very well, means that you know how to play the role that you need to play, independent of being an introvert or not. I think that's important for many of our leaders listening is what's trainable and what should I care about? Like there are so many things I need to worry about to run a business every day. In my role of leadership development and coaching, occasionally I'm hired to coach someone to be more, quote, leaderly. Yes. And it's always been curious to me what exactly that means to be leaderly versus actually be a good leader. <laughs> it seems to come down to the perception and the facade rather than the actual execution of leadership. Well, that's one part. So, you know, we're holding constant everything to see whether if a leader is charismatic, that matters. But I've also done work on what's called instrumental leadership, or what I call the nuts and bolts of leadership, having domain-relevant expertise. So let me just be clear about one thing. Although I'm known a lot for my work on charisma, I've also done work on expertise. And let's just give you an analogy. If I had to choose to get on one or two planes, on one of them, the pilot is a bit lousy, but super charismatic. And the other one, the pilot is not at all charismatic, but knows how to find the damn plane. I think you know which plane I'm going to choose to get on. So it really matters that, first of all, the person knows and understands the system, the constraints, the environment, and has domain-relevant expertise. For me, that is the first thing that matters, the sine qua non of leadership. Now, if you have that, and if you can exhort the troops and give a good battle cry and give them that extra motivation to push them to go the extra mile, all the better. But I would never substitute charisma for domain-relevant expertise. So just to be clear, first, we better know what we're talking about. We better be experts in the system. We better understand what's happening. We better know the roads, the naps and bolts. Charisma is something that makes it more enticing and more easy to motivate us. When we think about an effective leadership, I like the point of a good pilot knows how to land the plane, take it off and address wind shear and all of the potential problems that will come up, how they make the announcements to the passengers. I frankly don't care. Now, unfortunately, with leadership, we often don't know how to evaluate the person's technical skills 
just like when I go to a surgeon, the Yelp reviews are probably not very helpful. I or many people would look at bedside manner as a proxy for surgical skills, which are completely different skill sets. I wonder with leadership, we've talked a lot about people who have subject matter expertise, but don't stay current on leadership expertise. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. So, you know, there would be, say, the typical engineering profile or, you know, person who studied econ or law or what have you and kind of knows the system and how to navigate in that. I mean, those are the kinds of people I think who would benefit a lot from understanding a bit more about the psychology of leadership and soft methods of influence and how they can motivate others by using emotional means and morals and values. So definitely uh, those experts who are kind of a bit sterile could benefit with a bit of uh, spice. What have you thought was innate that you have discovered can be taught? Huh. Well, charisma is one thing. We usually have a tendency to think, you know, she's born charismatic and he's not. So that's something that I think we've definitely demonstrated that it's teachable. You know, we have field experiments where we've done that. You know, other things that are mostly innate and they hard to change, for example, general intelligence, if uh, I know there's a lot of controversy around that, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's largely heritable, but still education does matter. Environment does matter. You know, if one is properly has proper nutrition or, you know, has riboflavin and all the vitamins that are needed. There's experiments that have been done in deworming kids, you know, in poor countries. They will straight away increase intelligence because more nutrients are available for the kid that are not um, stolen by the parasite. So intelligence certainly matters a lot for leadership. That's something I cannot stress enough because smart people can observe patterns, can infer from them, can better understand how the world works. That is matterable to some extent through environmental factors and education. Personality is also largely heritable. So intelligence, when we're talking about heritabilities, it can be up to about 70 to 80% heritable. And that's estimated from looking at twin studies where twins are reared together or apart that come from one zygote of two. And we can get a very precise estimate. We don't know which genes are driving the effect, but we know the effect of the genes. So intelligence can be up to 80% heritable, which is shockingly high. Personality is about 50%, but again, it matters for leadership. It increases probabilities that one emerges if one is more extroverted or not. But still, one can learn to behave in a particular way. And even if one does not behave like this stereotypical extroverted person, one can still influence by using other means. So, you know, quiet and visionary leadership works just as well as Steve Barmer, shock and all. I don't react to that because I, I think there was just way too much over the top. Yeah, I think most behaviors are skills that can be learned. Many people learn them implicitly by trial and error. But, you know, if we can unravel them and demystify them like we have with charisma, then we can teach them. And I think it's important that everyone can teach them, learn these things so that they can go beyond these initial implicit classification schemes that others can see who they truly are so that everyone can shine, whether they're introverted or not. I love the idea that everyone can shine because the fact that my personality by this age is baked, if I couldn't be an effective leader because of the parenting I received, that would seem really unfortunate, especially if I were a really competent person in other areas. Yes. You talk about the importance of evidence and the charisma studies and the impact of knowing your stuff. What research or leadership practices do you think are actually dangerous? 
So stuff that people are saying, peddling, professing that you think are just wrong. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Let me give one example, which I think has misled completely the a world of practice. Two books which are extremely good sellers, bestsellers. They still, I think if you look on Amazon, they're probably highly ranked. It's Good to Great and Built to Last. You may know these books. Yep. Those researchers made some fundamental statistical errors that I, I just don't understand how they were oblivious to that and how it took a long time before they got called out on this. Before I, I explain to you the problem, let me just go back and explain it in an analogy. In the Second World War, Lancaster bombers were coming back from sorties in Germany. The generals noticed that the planes were being hit disproportionately just around the engines and in the main fuselage. So they told the engineers, why don't you reinforce the areas where we see that the planes have a lot of bullet holes? You know, it seems like the German ACAC guns, for some reason, are targeting these areas. And a statistician in the room said, no, 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 no. Whatever you do, do not reinforce the areas where you see bullet holes. This is not a problem. That's why the planes came back. If you want to know what makes a plane go down and what you should reinforce is study the planes that went down. And it's quite likely that the areas that you don't see any bullet holes, that's where you should reinforce, where the engines are and where the pilots sit. Because, you know, if they shot the pilot, of course, the plane's going to go down. And if the engine gets hit, of course, the plane's going to go down. So what's the problem here? The problem is studying what's what we call sampling on the dependent variable. The generals were looking at the dependent variables, planes that were coming back, and made inferences on the planes by looking at commonalities between the planes. Now, analogously, these guys who wrote the book uh, Good to Great and Built to Last, they studied what they thought were the best companies. So these are the planes that came back. You know, they did really well on Wall Street for many years, and then they looked what commonalities they had, and they assumed that those commonalities drove success. One of the stuff that came up with was level five leadership or what have you, you know, be humble and be this and be that. You can say what you want. But what if the leaders of companies who also went down have those characteristics? You wouldn't know unless you studied them. So basically, the problem is oftentimes there's no control. And I love to give the example of my grandfather. You know, my grandfather drank a lot. He drank a unit of measurement uh, in Crete. It's called the Okai. It's an old Ottoman unit of measurement, which is approximately 1.4 liters. You know, I don't know what that is in ounces, but that's quite a lot. It's like maybe about three pounds of alcohol a day if we had to measure it in weight. Wow. I mean, he drank a lot. He had a drinking problem. He smoked as well. Um, and we're talking filtered cigarettes, about a packet a day, sometimes two. He died at 92 years old. Now, if you go to the village where my dad comes from and my grandfather comes from, there are many people who live to be 90, 100, many of them smoke a lot and drink a lot. So that's obvious proof that smoking and drinking is good for oneself, isn't it? Obviously not. Now, if one were to randomize people like my grandfather to smoke and drink or not, one would probably see that smoking and drinking probably reduced his age by about 10 years. So the point is that we really need to have a control group. We need to see all the other guys and girls who died earlier because of smoking and drinking. And the, my point is we need to have control groups. Without control groups, you know, we can study what we want. Daniel Goldman, he made the same error. You know, I studied the star performers and they all had one thing in common, emotional intelligence. All right, that's very nice. Star performers, again, it's the planes that came back. What about the planes that crashed? You know, what if they also have this quality? So one needs to have a control group. And over and over again, I see this very basic elementary error that is made by well-meaning consultants, writers, even professors, 
who haven't unfortunately received good training in statistics, econometrics, or, or things like that. No one's going out to, you know, make up stories. And, you know, I think they're well-meaning, but unfortunately, well-meaning can sometimes lead others down the garden path. Are there studies of leaders who led their company into absolute failure? I haven't studied that, so I shouldn't uh, make any statements about this. But prospectively, if we could measure CEO characteristics that are sort of stable, exogenously given, and then follow them over time, take into account macroeconomic, microeconomic factors, institutional factors, control for everything, and then see what makes for a good or a bad leader, that would be great. But it would be very hard to do it. And, and actually, we don't really have very strong data on determining the long-term causes and success of companies. So it would be very, very hard to pull such a study off. However, in the era of big data analytics, perhaps we may be able to. And this is perhaps a topic we can talk about in a bit if you're interested. I would be curious. I'd assume that people who've worked in the arena of leadership development and consulting have seen patterns in organizations they think are more likely to succeed and those who are less likely to succeed. Now, I realize my life experience doesn't fall in the big data category, but I'm assuming that you can look at a leader and say, okay, that one has some serious flaws because of your decades of experience. I wouldn't be able to do that. Not easily. <laughs> Even though I have a lot of experience, a lot of consulting experience with CEOs, politicians, what have you, I'm 52, so you know, perhaps under 20 years experience or so, I still would not want to draw on my experience because I would probably selectively remember cases and wishfully apply my insights as a function of my expectations and what I think is right and true. I think it's very, very, very hard for any person to kind of diagnose, you know, like a doctor, uh, you know, who has tests. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's very, very difficult. Doctors, they, they know a little bit more what we're doing because they'll take a blood sample. And if they see a marker for cancer, you know, they can reasonably uh, say, this is likely, therefore we should do this or we should do that. We don't have these diagnostics in leadership yet. And that's why I'm, I'm also pleading for a lot more work to be done with computer scientists and, and electrical engineers who have opened up the era of big data using deep neural networks so we can measure a lot of information over time on people, a lot of qualitative information. So not, not just, you know, like an IQ score or a score on extroversion, but a lot of data where they were, their experiences, how they spoke, taking speeches, looking at decisions made, and then identify types, having certain characteristics, and then seeing over time how these things pan out in predicting success and failure. So we're not at that point of doing it, but certainly big data analytics will start opening up the black box for real because we just need lots of data across many situations, across different contexts, and over time before we can really understand what's happening. I would doubt my own impressions and opinions. I want to go to big data, but before that, there are some well-researched and I'm assuming well-validated, at least given our current ability to measure assessments. Are there any that you think are better than others? <laughs> You're putting me on the spot. In terms of, say, the fundamentals, the usual suspects uh -huh. of what probably drives whether a person can learn, whether they can infer from patterns and how they behave. So, you know, in terms of measuring ability, general intelligence, the ability to learn and personality, yes, there are pretty good inventories out there. 
that matter. I mean, I, I can just mention a couple. I have no economic interest in this, but a few that have impressed me, you know, like the company called Wonderlick, the Wonderlick Personnel Test. They also measure personality. They do a very good job, I think. You know, the Big Five inventory, I think, is pretty good using the Neo PI or the Hexaco model. Uh, it's like the Big Five that adds honesty and humility. So I think the the fundamentals that can predict success at work, whether leadership or managerial performance, I think those are pretty good. What is problematic is more these behavioral inventories where they ask people to rate a leader. I think those are more problematic when they are used as independent variables to link to other dependent variables. I mean, as a diagnostic tool, perhaps, you know, doing a 360 inventory with some questionnaire could be useful to see how people perceive someone and what they can work on. But I wouldn't use those things to, you know, in a scientific study to try and predict success. I don't want to make any statements about the leadership questionnaires because we have a special issue call out beyond the ritualized use of questionnaires towards the science of true leadership behavior. So, you know, I, I would rather observe a video and see a leader giving a speech or seeing how they take a decision. That's a much better and veritable indication of what the leader actually does than asking a person's perception of what someone does because that perception comes loaded with a lot of expectations and a lot of biases. If I could, I would take a torch and put fire to all the questionnaires and, and start everything from the beginning. That's why we have that special issue. So we have some really, really good papers that are under review right now. We've accepted a few, but we really want to go beyond this ritualized use of questionnaires in, in leadership research. So there you have it. So what I hear is personality type does matter. Well, personality, yeah, I wouldn't call it type because that would invoke the MBTI, and which, which I don't appreciate very much. But the personality, well, yeah, what can we use? I, I don't know what you say. The personalities, yeah, the personality of an individual. Yeah, the type of person they are, but, but not like MBTI type, just like type in terms of the colloquial usage of the word. Yes. Because that gets back to then introversion, extroversion as the example. Yeah. And to say that I, as I think your term earlier was a quiet visionary can be as effective or more so yes. than someone who has the traditional big personality. Exactly, exactly. And then when, when we look at personality, there are various factors that we, we measure. The big five looks at neuroticism or emotional stability, openness, extroversion, how agreeable the person is and how conscientious. So variability on those factors and on the ability to learn is really what matters the most. Those are the fundamentals for whether a person can acquire expertise and, and whether they can be effective as a leader. So, you know, that's what I call the usual suspects. It's very hard to find any other individual difference variable that actually can go beyond the big five and ability. In all the tests I've done, and I've looked at a lot of emotional intelligence questionnaires, I haven't found any, for example, with emotional intelligence that matters. It seems it's all due to the big five and general intelligence. Like I said, if you're reasonably smart, independent of your intelligence, you can still learn to behave and enact a particular role. You know, I guess most actors also, I, I hear, I mean, I don't have any study on this, but apparently many actors are introverted. I don't know, half of them, lots of them. I don't know how many of them are. I mean, but even some great actors um, who played in Dead Poets. Oh, Robin Williams. Robin Williams, apparently, was very introverted, very neurotic, very unstable, depressed. He had a lot of problems. Yet, I mean, uh, whew, he was brilliant stand-up comedian, brilliant actor. He knew how to play the role when he had to play it because he was super smart. Okay, so that again gets back to my intellect can guide me to do those things that are charismatic if I have 
the intellect and train it to do the things that matter. Exactly. Yeah. Intellect and education mm -hmm. and training. Yes. Now let's go to big data because I'm really curious. And you mentioned in our intro hormones. How do hormones tie to this? Ah. Other than 16-year-old boys who have hormones. But <laughs> for the rest of us. It actually has something to do with that. Well, when we published the study that I mentioned with the kids predicting election outcomes, this was in France, a journalist from Italy, I forget her name, but she, she worked for Corriera della Sera, which is a very big newspaper. She asked me to discuss the case of Berlusconi. And, uh, was like, you know, I don't know. I don't discuss cases. I have no idea. But she's like, why is he so effective and this and that and, and you know, all these sex scandals and bunga bunga parties and, you know, this and that and corruption. I said, I have no idea. She goes, well, come on, you must have some idea. I said, I don't know. I said, maybe the answer is between his legs. I mean, I said that in a tongue-in-cheek way. I said, don't quote me. <laughs> She's like, what do you mean? I said, I don't know. I, yeah, let's just change the topic. And then I went away from that, and I had a student of mine who wanted to study corruption. Again, in the leadership literature, it's a big mess about studying corruption and whether power makes people corrupt. Because typically what happened is researchers would study people in power and they would notice that people in power often be corrupt. But does that mean that power corrupts or does it mean that corrupt people seek power? You don't know this. So the only way you can figure this out is, is firstly to exogenously manipulate power, take people, normal people, and then randomly give them power or not to see whether power actually makes them more corrupt. So what we did in the laboratory is we created what's called a dictator game. Now, we didn't tell the students that were playing a dictator game. We told them that they would get an allocation of resources and they would decide how to pay out the people who were assigned to their team. So the leaders had full discretion on how to pay them. There was the default decision where the leader got a bit more and the followers a bit less. There was a pro-social decision where the leader reduced his or her salary and the followers got a bit more. So that grew the social welfare. This other thing kind of reduced it. And then there was an anti-social option where the leader increased his or her payout substantially, but to the detriment of the public good. So in this study, we exogenously manipulated power. We had high stakes. Some of our students walked out of the lab with $130 after playing. So the stakes were super high. But we also pre-measured testosterone hmm. six weeks before the experiment. Um, we took samples of testosterone from all students, males and females. We got that through saliva, and we had them analyzed in the lab. And it turns out that variability on testosterone, when coupled with high power, predicted the highest levels of corruption. People ask me, so, you know, what are the implications of your study? Because we know that men have six times more of the stuff than women do. And as a joke, I say, well, the implications are obvious. Snip, snip. <laughs> well, yes, that was uh, governance mechanisms are very important. Um, not giving leaders complete and total discretion. But, you know, hey, you got to think about it. The Romans, they used to use, how do you say, I don't know how to pronounce the word, eunuchs, eunuchs as tax collectors. And for good reason, because they realized that those guys stole a lot less than did men who were intact or whatever one says. <laughs> Not sure where to go with this. Well, this was basic research. It was a question that we were, you know, so testosterone seems to play a role. So does power. But, you know, government's me mechanisms are important. But, uh -huh. That's what we did with testosterone. <laughs> well, and it's interesting to know which variables influence, honestly. Yes, yeah. So, you know, if you have a high testosterone man who's smart and uh, a smart woman, maybe you want to put your money on the woman if the discretion is unlimited. 
How about that? Or put governance systems in place that don't allow unlimited discretion. Exactly. Or snip, snip. And that was a joke. I would never <laughs> advocate that. And that was just done as a joke, obviously. <laughs> Again, back to there are elements that influence in our world that we haven't previously considered that impact outcomes. Yeah. At least for me, I'm curious to understand what they are, even if I can't take direct action. Yeah, that was, again, a piece of the puzzle. So we don't really think of the impact of testosterone. It's exogenous. It's given by our genes. So I can't decide that tomorrow I'm going to make my testosterone level go up or down. I have a basic level. Everyone has a basic level. We don't choose that. But that can affect how we behave. It can affect how aggressive one is, you know, strong they will be. And it seems that give high testosterone people more power, they're going to act more corruptly if they have complete discretion. Anyway, this whole thing was, was motivated by Lord Acton's quote that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it seems he was right. Well, for people with testosterone. And for people without. The, the people with testosterone were the most corrupt, but still giving people more power did make them more corrupt. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And over time, they started stealing, stealing. It was like a slippery slope. Um, so even the, the honest, the innocent, with more and more and more power, they were started just sliding down that slippery slope. And curiously, before the experiment, before they knew if they were going to become a decider or just a follower, we asked everyone, what should a responsible leader do? About 80% said, invoke the default option. 12% said, increase social welfare. And very few said, steal, invoke the antisocial option. But when they got power, you know, I don't know, about half of them invoked the uh, antisocial option, which is exactly contrary to what they said a good leader should do. So, you know, when in power and with unlimited discretion, you know, people feel more entitled and they don't consider the second order consequences of their decisions. In a way, it's like power buffers them from being empathic. And so does testosterone, it seems to me. Oh, that's interesting. So... Power and testosterone combined really do cause people. So term limits might be a tactic one could implement to navigate. Could be, yeah, yeah. And again, back to governance, checks and balances. Yeah, yeah. It is curious. Eh? Uh, you know, again, this is just anecdotal evidence. But, you know, take a look at your former presidents and, uh, you know, just try to impute a testosterone level to them, <laughs> how they behaved and what they thought was right or wrong, and just make your own conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, let's shift to big data. I would still love to see the scoring on the, the charisma meter, but let's go to big data right now. Okay. Scoring on the charisma meter is part of the big data. Okay. So we, we trained uh, a machine using deep neural networks from a random sample of TED Talks we took. So we had humans code sentence by sentence, whether it was a metaphor in the sentence or value statements or contrast. And then we trained a machine to do it. And, you know, now the machine can do thousands of talks. We have a study that's uh, under review right now where we took um, governor's speeches at the beginning of the pandemic, mid-February to kind of March and March. And we measured how charismatic the governors were on average and in a particular speech. And then we looked at people followed stay-at-home orders and this we looked at by how they, um, you know, the mobile phone circulation relative to where they were before. Getting this data where humans reading and coding speech is very cumbersome. It's labor intensive. They make mistakes. So, you know, now we have a charismometer. We, we've used it in three studies and we are writing now a validation study to show that it is a useful tool. 
because this can allow us to study thousands and tens of thousands of speeches. It would be impossible to do this with humans. They get tired, they make mistakes, they're very costly and cumbersome. So, you know, I use my assistants to do other things. It's not like they're going to replace my assistants. I can take my research to the next level by using this. So that's one example. You know, other examples would be, um, like I mentioned earlier, is to gather all kinds of information on leaders, all kinds of data that, that are available, archival data, so we can piece together, you know, what they've done, their trajectories to identify different types. I'm inspired by a project that's been done at the Federal Institute of Technology just down the road in Lausanne, and they call this the Venice Project. They took every historical information available on Venice, and Venice keeps a really good record of everything, purchases, sales, buildings that went up, who was in power, who was the, the dog, who was this, that. You know, everything, everything possible, everything was digitized and fed into the machine. So the machine, using deep neural networks, figured out, you know, temporally and spatially exactly what was going on in a particular moment in time in, in Venice. And, uh, you know, at a flick of a switch, one can understand dynamics that occurred in a particular moment in time and can do kind of thought experiments. Now, no historian would ever be able to have the vast knowledge that the machine has on things. So this is where I think we should be going also with leadership, is using machine technology first to amass lots of archival information so we can better see patterns. Secondly, I'm doing some work now with some colleagues from Lithuania in ISM. It's a private business school where we are interested to see whether we can use machine learning to reduce discrimination in hiring decisions, especially of leaders. Now, how can this happen? If, for example, I have a sample of people where I give them an IQ test, I give them a personality test, and then I ask them to give a speech. And I train the machine to infer how smart they are and their personality from the speech. I could reduce discrimination to a large amount because the machine doesn't care if you're a man or a woman, black or white, ugly or pretty, overweight or not. But a human who sees an interview is very biased by these things. So what we're going to do is train the machines to infer certain basic characteristics that interviewers try to assess in an interview. But we know for a fact that interviewers are very biased. Whether they like it or not, they're very biased by initial impressions. So that's going to be another way where I'm going to try to get to the ground truth of people's character and competence using machines and not training the machines from humans. Because when you do that, that's when bias creeps in. So, you know, there have been some people who've tried to train machines to do stuff and the bloody machines were racist because the humans who trained them were racist. So we're going to tackle the problem another way. So we've just started this project and I'm very hopeful that we can add to the literature because, you know, people are very scared of big data. They're very scared of, of machine learning and machines. But, you know, if we can harness the power of machine learning, we can do a lot of stuff because, because deep neural networks are incredibly good at detecting patterns. For example, in, in dermatology, they show the machine's skin that is cancerous or not, and they know what the truth is because they've taken a biopsy. And, you know, once trained, the machine will perform better than the world's best experts in dermatology. They've been doing stuff now with cases in, in, the, in the legal domain. You know, they train the machine, here are these cases here with the judgments, and they present a new case. You know, instantly the machine knows what the judgment will be or, or what attack to take. <laughs> you know, a lawyer would have to read everything and take a long time. And, and again, the machine does as well as the top, top lawyer. So we just don't use this stuff yet in social sciences. I think because people have a, 
you know, they're a bit scared of maths and of, of, of all these things. And, you know, these machines are going to take over the world. I've been working on the charismometer like for five years and it can very reliably detect charisma, but it can't tie my shoelace. It certainly can't walk out of my room and kidnap my dog and sell it back to me at ransom. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it Humans are the problems. Humans are the immoral ones. As Martin Luther King said, we have guided missiles and misguided men. So, you know, knowledge of charisma or knowledge of physics or knowledge of chemistry can be used for good or bad. So it's not the technology that's a problem, it's the humans. So I'm pleading for a, a more diversified and cross-disciplinary study of leadership. We really need computer science to come into our field in all social sciences, actually, and history in particular. I mean, I think that would be very interesting given what I mentioned earlier about the Venice Project. I can't imagine a historian in 30 years from now who's not an expert in machine learning. Who do you think won't be an expert in machine learning in 30 years? <laughs> I'll be uh, 80 by then. I hope to be alive. And I hope I have some of the good genes that my granddaddy and my grandmama had. <laughs> uh, I have no idea. I'm not uh, good at predicting the future. or f- I have no idea. But uh, I can imagine that we're going to be using a lot uh, machine learning. And and that will give humans more time to perhaps do other things. You know, we leave the mundane stuff and the discovery of things to machines and we'll be able to do other endeavors and, you know, maybe go back to the arts and learn poetry. That seems like a vision of the future that is much more optimistic than some people I hear. Yeah. Yeah. I really think we can use those machines and we can go back to being real humans where, you know, love and art and poetry and music and getting more in touch with nature and, you know, we can live like real humans. So we can harness the machine so we can become more human-like, ironically. I'm going to leave us on that note that by studying leadership and by leveraging the power of the technology we already have and that is continuing to expand, that we can lead better, create a better life for all of us. And it also sounds more equitable Exactly, that we can root out some of the discrimination and the actions that are harmful based on a human bias. Exactly. And a better quality of life and use our resources more efficiently and more effectively. That is, we have finite resources and, and I think we need to harness whatever we can and whatever knowledge we have to use these resources in, a, in an intelligent way so that we can live as humans properly once again. John, thank you. You are inspirational and also quite entertaining. How might someone contact you and learn more about your work? I'm on LinkedIn, um, so they can connect with me on LinkedIn if they wish. I'm also on Twitter. Those are the two places. Uh, they can message me through that. My email address is also, uh, if you Google me, there's only one John Antonakis who works in Switzerland. My name should pop up quite quickly. So feel free to contact me. Say you heard me on Maureen's show and ask the question. I'll try to get back to you in a reasonably fast manner. And people can find your publications, I assume, on LinkedIn? They're on my webpage. Uh, All my publications are available on my webpage and usually with preprints or a link to the publisher. So if a paper is behind a paywall and someone would like to read it and they don't have access, you know, I'm very happy to share my research. Please just contact me again. It's on my webpage. If you Google my name, John Antonakis, it comes up. Perhaps we can link that also when we post, uh, if you'd like. We hope that we can talk to you again to our listeners. Thank you for joining us. I trust that you have found several insights from John that you can put into place in your own work and leadership and life. Thank you very much, Maureen.